0: We are back. Political theory and um, other stuff with Mike and Paul. Chapter six of Capitalist Realism by Mark Fisher. Epis- or the chapter is called All That Is Solid Melts Into PR. Market Stalinism, and bureaucratic anti-production. Paul, would you mind taking Good it away? Stuff.
1: I would love to. Thank you. Mike Judge's unjustly undercelebrated film Office Space, not undercelebrated in this corner, I'll tell you that much, which came out in 1999, is an acute an account of the 90s slash aughts workplace. Has Schrader's Blue Collar 1978 was of 70s labor relations? Instead of the confrontation between trade union officials and management in a factory, Judge's film shows a corporation. A sclerotized. Ooh, ding ding ding. Word of the day. Hold the fuck. <laughs> Four sentences in this time, guys. I hope you're excited. The word which I think is
0: sclero sclerotized. I don't know what that means. You know, What's last weird? episode, I believe it was last episode, we had three words of the day. Whew, and I love that. Day. I love
1: that. Busy. Well, there's a week between episodes, so we're really just allowing people uh, right. to really have something to do multiple yeah. days a week. That's uh, true. Of an insect's body or part of one hardened by conversion into sclerotin. Um, I still... I guess just hardened? Okay. Yeah, hardened, especially by the formation of sclerotin. Sclerotized. Uh, sclerotized.
0: Sclerotin is a component of the something of various anthro, anthropoda, um, most familiarly insects. Okay, so maybe uh, it is formed by crossing, cross-linking members of particular classes of protein molecules, a biological process called sclerotization. Technically, it amounts to a form of tanning. Okay.
1: Now, what would be supertype? As if he used that word, because he wanted to use hardened, but also imply that these are like cockroaches. These are like corporate cockroaches. If that's what he did, oh I my th- God. That, I would assume. That layer of skill. Right. That's awesome. Like right. why, Mark Fisher, you uh, can't debate this assumption. So uh, unbelievable writing. Unbelievable. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Judge's film shows a corporation uh, sclerotized by an administrative anti-production. Workers receive multiple memos from different managers saying the exact same thing. Naturally, the memo concerns a bureaucratic practice. It aims to induce compliance with a new procedure of putting cover sheets on reports. (laughs) In keeping with the being smart ethos, the management style in office space is a mixture of shirt sleeves informality and quiet authoritarianism. Judge shows this same managerialism presides in the corporate coffee chains where the office workers go to relax. Here, staff are required to decorate their uniforms with seven pieces of flair, parentheses, i.e. badges or other personal tokens, and parentheses, to express their individuality and creativity, a handy illustration of the way in which creativity and self-expression have become intrinsic to labor in control societies, which, as paulo Bierno, Jan Moeller, Jan Moyer, Botong, and others have pointed out, now makes effective as well as productive demands on workers. Furthermore, the attempt to crudely quantify these effective contributions also tells us a great deal about the new arrangements. The flair example also points to another phenomenon, hidden expectations behind official standards. Joanna, a waitress at the coffee chain, wears exactly seven pieces of flair, but it is made clear to her that even though seven is officially enough, it's actually inadequate. The manager asks if she wants to look like the sort of person who only does the bare minimum. You know what, Stan? If you want me to wear 37 pieces of flair, Joanna complains, why don't you just make the minimum 37 pieces of flair? Well, the manager replies, I thought I remembered you saying that you wanted to express yourself. Enough is no longer enough. This syndrome will be familiar to many workers who may find that a satisfactory grading in a performance evaluation is no longer satisfactory. In many educational institutions, for instance, if after a classroom observation a teacher is graded as satisfactory, they will be required to undertake training prior to a reassessment. So much to unpack in those few paragraphs. The first thing that like, comes to my mind is that it's kind of scary that corporations are getting better in this time and age of being like creative or acting like they're not intentional in it. Uh, I think the biggest thing I think of is like certain companies' Twitter accounts like Wendy's, things like that. Like they are legitimately almost funny and stuff, which it's terrifying that companies have tried to push the we're fun and hip theme so far that they may have actually cracked some of those codes, if you will. Like Uh, when I think about companies trying to be fun in the 90s, just like how far off the mark they were from what anybody thought was fun or enjoyable. Fuck, or maybe I'm just in the right age category now. Oh, shit. Yeah.
0: Well, and I'm not even sure if that's necessarily what he's talking about no it's not that
1: was my own personal thing is that like fuck dude that was so accurate of the 90s but now companies actually are to a point where like holy
0: shit they hired a good marketing team um oh so you're saying that the marketing that they've done a better job targeting or or hitting yeah i
1: guess on a right and on a broader scale to say like and this is so not what Mark Fisher was talking about. So sorry, everybody. It's just my own thought that, you know, like in the nineties companies were trying to be cool. And like, there is actually a point now where like larger huge corporations are actually doing things that like start memes or start things that people like actually think are cool. And that is uh, terrifying that not only are they giant corporations, but they're starting to figure out how to talk (laughs) to fucking people, which I don't think is a great idea. I don't want, the world being more sympathetic towards Wendy's,
0: I guess, is my fucking point. Okay, so I'm gonna try to bring it back to the text a little bit. Yeah, yeah, that's fine, (laughs) that's
1: I guess if that's what we wanna do.
0: (laughs) I mean, if if that's how you're gonna be, bringing it back to the text, I guess we- We Talk about the book we're reading. Yeah, like, yeah, sure, dude, whatever. This idea of satisfactory not being satisfactory (laughs) is so frustrating and so true. Obviously, we see it in all kinds of places. I think of like grade inflation. Like I remember in high school, hearing about schools and situations where people could get above a 4.0. And I was always just like, wait a second, that doesn't make sense. An A is the highest grade. How could you have, if you have all A's, that should be a 4.0 how could you have a 4.2 or a 4.3 or whatever, you know? And obviously that has to do with like grade inflation and whatnot. And it's the same thing uh, even in uh, the industry I work in, 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 hospitality, you know, I remember, and I talk about it a lot, but just trying to, to move up in, in my area and having them be like, well, you know, we really want to see this, this, and this from you. And then seeing someone hired, that doesn't have all those things and i'm like well wait and they're like oh well that's what training is for so they can learn those things i'm like yeah Wait, why don't i why can't i do those things in training too you know and what's shitty is it's all
1: so intentional too like when i used to do shit with performance standards what you would present as a satisfactory performance was literally requested to like weed out people It's like, well, if they're just gonna do this bare minimum, then we know they're not loyal. We know they don't care about the brand shit like that. And no matter how many times, and I'm not exaggerating, I would literally, this was like my most office space style feeling in life. I would just be like, well, why don't we just let them know what they need to do in their jobs then? This gray area is what screws us. You can't expect somebody to devote their life to a ten, fifty an hour job uh, and show up every day be like, I am going above and beyond. Uh, I know there's no promotion opportunities. I know it's a scheduled annual raise, but I am just going to come in and I am just going to kick ass because this brand defines me. It's so gross <laughs> yeah. and so uh, not connected to how
0: any actual human I've ever met thinks about life. Starting at initially, is that correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. Sir. What I like about that is I've got that, that paragraph earmarked. So.
1: Ooh, ooh, so we know something good's coming.
0: Yeah, Hopefully. But it's funny since I don't write anything on my earmarks. It's like yeah, I, I do don't remember too. what it's like. I've got 50 of them and I don't know why I did any of them. Oh, uh, uh,
1: what I do with them is just spend time being like, fuck, I wonder why I,
0: I highlighted this. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 And I guess that's good to, <laughs> to go over a section a few times to be like, wait, why was this important? To me? <laughs> Okay. Initially, it might appear to be a mystery that bureaucratic measures should have intensified under neoliberal governments that have presented themselves as anti-bureaucratic and anti-Stalinist. Yet, new kinds of bureaucracy, aims and objectives, outcomes, mission statements have proliferated, even as neoliberal rhetoric about the end of top-down centralized control has gained preeminence it might seem that bureaucracy is a kind a kind of return of the uh repressed ironically reemerging at the heart of a system which has professed to destroy it but the resurgence of bureaucracy in neoliberalism is more than an atavized or an anomaly what is at activism activism
1: uh, i'm I don't know. Okay.
0: I used to guess, but now that I'm recording,
1: now that I'm recording, not knowing what these words mean, uh, I've got to be more hesitant.
0: Uh, Will you look it up? What I have
1: is, yes, a tendency to revert to something ancient or ancestral. Example sentence. The more civilized a society seems to be, the more susceptible it is to its buried atavism. Mm. Okay.
0: Okay. Okay. Oh, I feel like I should have known that word. Okay, so I'm going to redo that sentence. But the resurgence of bureaucracy in neoliberalism is more than an atavism or an anomaly. I still don't really understand how that Like it's
1: more than just like a hangover of previous societies. I think it's saying it's more than like a conservative, like we're hanging on to our old principles that it's like a creation of itself. Okay. Um that instead of it not being able to shed something old or whatever that it actually requires it for its own its own concept
0: okay so uh I think the reason why I highlighted that epi- that uh paragraph is because i 'm always having uh debates not necessarily in real life but in my head against my dad about okay. bureaucracy about government's inefficiencies in his mind versus the private sector's efficiencies in his mind and how I question the level of efficiency that private institutions yeah. have. Just the beginning, that beginning sentence, initially it might appear to be a mystery that bureaucratic measures that should have intensified under or intensified under neoliberal governments uh, that have presented themselves anti-bureaucratic and anti-Stalinistic. And I just... I've- to me is like, okay, yeah, so these things are worse than someone like my dad would would acknowledge.
1: Right. And I think where they like get away with it or where they like excuse it is that in a um neoliberal setup or just, you know, a corporate setup, every job has a profit margin attached to it. <clears throat> and some of them are so uh vague, if you will, like, oh, this job will definitely bring in this much money to the company. And so when we would create when I would create positions that would have to be something that would be coupled with the position, the wage that we were expecting to offer and the benefit that it would financially bring to the company to have that position occupied. Uh, And the departments that got hard were departments that are super necessary, but didn't necessarily bring in cash. So like it is a great example of something um, that every once in a while can get a better system or something that will increase, you know, or decrease profit loss, things of that nature. But a lot of the times uh, what IT does can't be quantified as like a profit margin. Like Making sure people's computers work, while obviously that's necessary, it's hard to be like, well, that will add $80,000 to the company this year or whatever. It's just uh, same with HR. Another thing that doesn't add explicit profit to a company, but obviously if it wasn't there, the company would hemorrhage money in certain ways, lawsuits, shit like that.
0: Maybe we'll do an episode about the the article that the book is based on, but Uh, David Graeber wrote this book called, uh, well, first wrote an article called Bullshit Jobs. And then that article got such positive feedback, they ended up writing a book called Bullshit Jobs that I sent to my dad that I listened to. The book is basically about how there are inefficient jobs throughout both the private and public sector. And in the public sector, he uses examples from like the USSR um, and then also modern day Germany. But then in the private sector, He goes through all kinds of crazy shit. And one of the funniest ones I remember was his publishing company or a publishing company he published with was like this small company in New York. And they probably had someone come in to talk to them about their their book that's upcoming to publish probably like once a week. But they had a front desk attendant. So this lady... Only sees one person once a week, and whenever people call, they already know who they need to talk to because they already have their editor or whatever right so, so she would just pick up the calls and transfer them to people that they could theoretically have transferred themselves to. Um, but if you just don 't have someone sitting at the entrance of your office that 's like super in, in people 's minds that 's super weird, even though no one except for people delivering like more paper or whatever, more office supplies are just randomly walking in. You get what I'm saying? Right.
1: Well, and no company, at least like no company with shareholders or budgetary discretion will ever want to admit that a role is unnecessary because then that will be cut from the budget as well. Like if you're like, oh, I eliminated that role. You don't just get to keep that cash. That is just eliminated from the labor budget. And like, I guess my other thing, would just be, it's a di- I just feel like they're totally wrong. There's so much inefficiency in private sector, if that uh, wasn't what I came off as, that, as what I'm implying. Uh, I think the difference is how a lot of the contracts are set up. With the government, you're given money uh, in a lot of situations, like a a budget is laid out ahead of time via you know legislation or decisions within that bureaucracy, and then you have to supply jobs until you meet that budget. And I think that view, that difference of view, is what gets a lot of people stuck. Like, oh, they're just adding jobs to get to the budget. Whereas in the private sector, while there's useless jobs, they have that like uh, perspective of looking like every job is geared towards profit sector, even though a lot of it is like made up. Um, like, you know, the companies I've worked at, there are so many positions where, you know, a manager or a director will just be like, I just don't want to do this part of my job anymore. So I'll hire somebody to do it and they can make it look like that's necessary when realistically it's not government. Like I said, I think it is just the different ways that they are funded um, have led a lot of these like hyper capitalist people into being like, well, see, they just waste money. They take money and they, you know, in my experience, the government is so much more efficient because they know exactly what budget they have to operate in and like what goals they have to the money. You know whatever, I'm going on. I think changing again, so just uh, well.
0: And the, the other thing, too, though, is that where Graeber talks about the worst uh, inefficiency as far as government is concerned is when there's a public private business partnerships. He doesn't, I don't think he talks about this example in his book, but I remember this documentary I watched called Iraq for Sale, and it talked about the privatization of roles that the military used to do that they no longer did and just like absurd stuff for instance our military when we were in Iraq didn't do their own laundry and in previous wars we did our own laundry so they would contract out laundry but the the company that would pick up the laundry didn't have clearance to actually like come into the base and get the laundry so all the guys had to collect their laundry and like put it at a pickup station for these people and then the company that would pick up the laundry obviously They have more profit if they can cut costs on the laundry. And so they were doing such a shitty job at washing their laundry that the um, soldiers were ending up washing their laundry by hand at the base. But since the bases were like temp- at that point temporary installations, their uh, sewage system wasn't set up for people doing their own laundry. So they were having issues with um, water backing up, gray water backing up from people trying to wash laundry in their portable sinks and whatever. And so then they were told like, hey, you guys can't be washing your own laundry. You have to be giving it to this company. It was just absurd. And then the, the other example, I remember the, the documentary talked about them doing uh, like logistical runs of supplies from one base to another. The companies got paid for each trip, not the tonnage. So they would fill the trucks like halfway full. <laughs> And then ship them back and forth but then also um you have to like where your, your trucker is going to stay so they were building these like nice hotels you know like marriott suites what i would consider right. nice hotels yeah, yeah marriott suites see. with like pools and stuff in iraq and having these truckers stay at those and then they would contract um uh, security services to escort the trucks back and forth and there were times where dudes got killed semi-drivers got killed taking a truck from point A to point B with little to nothing on it so that they could charge for that. And then someone died. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. No, it's so if, and it's so intentional too. I mean, like, my point is is that if, if the military had been doing its own laundry and had been doing its own, uh, moving of material supplies, they would have need more bodies on the ground, but it wouldn't have been as expensive because there wouldn't have been a profit motive. You get what I'm saying? Yeah.
1: And there's, there's so much inside those interactions. Like one uh, politicians super are able to use those contracts uh, to gain favor and campaign donations, Uh, you know, outside of the military, just look what's going on. You know, it's the year 2020 in May. Look what's going on with COVID contracts. Trump is handing out like mask and shit contracts to companies that have never done it before to gain political favor. And then the other devious thing, I, as you know, worked within a realm of military contracting.
0: Okay, that went back to normal, I think. Okay. Okay. Yeah, okay. Is that better? Yeah, yeah, that's better. Holy crap. Sorry. (laughs) No, it's okay. Uh,
1: But yeah, so I used to work uh, in a realm of military contracting Uh, And the other thing that it does is that it makes it so military personnel don't learn those skills anymore. Like they're not learning how to weld, they're not welding, how to run CNC operations and shit like that. And what's ironic is that all of the people contracting were former military members who were taught how to do that while in the military. Um, So what I'm afraid of, and I don't have any proof for this, it was just some shit I noticed while it was happening. is like, What happens when all these Vietnam era vets have totally retired? there's just going to be such a dearth of like high level, uh, knowledge. It's, you know, it's going to be a lot of people who just never had to do the shit. Uh, and there won't be that overall, uh, because the companies I worked with, none of them train their employees. You had to pass tests to get on the job. It wasn't like, okay, we'll build you up into this. There weren't apprenticeship programs. There weren't shit like that. Um, and now that the military doesn't have, it's so much cheaper for them not to train military personnel to do that. Uh, I, I really do think in like five to 10 years, there's going to be,
0: well, hopefully I'm issue. wrong, but yeah, but a huge shortage of people who are able to like maintain naval vessels and shit like that. I, I think it'll be interesting. Hopefully, hopefully that. in five or 10 years, we'll just be like, oh, well, we don't have people that have the knowledge to, to take care of this stuff. So let's just not, let's, let's bring <laughs> them in, you know, let's, let's make new um, coral reefs with them, you know, how they, turn them into they, hotels. That, yeah, whatever, just you know, like get rid of them. I would love yeah. to see the majority of our military decommissioned
1: unfortunately i think that they'll just have people who don't know what they're doing do it so we'll just have like random battle yep. carriers and shit sink uh yeah,
0: or nuclear maybe, meltdowns maybe. and shit or, or or we'll like contract like internationally so we'll have yeah. like people that are supposedly are like rivals or whatever <laughs> right you now like welding like repairing our our battleships you know so that we can <laughs> we can patrol the waters by their their countries mm-hmm. you know well, and then if we ever need to manufacture conflict,
1: we can have one of their things break down and be like, oh, they fucking did it on purpose. Right. Let's go yeah. get them. Right. We're going to have to have them build us some boats first, but then we're going to go fucking right. get them real good.
0: <laughs> yeah. and see. Well, since you shot down our um, aircraft and since you repair them, could you just repair them yeah. there for us and then ship them back <laughs> so we can try to bomb you again?
1: Yeah.
0: All right. We're so we're right. doing such a good job with our uh um oh we're, ge- we're getting we're getting through this so yeah. fast so it's... fast dude <laughs> fucking we chapter get... six part seven yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we'll just gonna have an episode where we just can't talk and we're just gonna have to read like verbatim
0: right uh, yeah the whole time I'll, I'll uh i'll go here as i have already indicated there is no contradiction between or not parentheses quotations being smart and the increase of administration and regulation colon they are two sides of labor in control societies richard senate has argued that the flattening of pyramidal hierarchies have actually led to more surveillance of workers um in in uh, quotations one of the claims made for the new organization of work is that it decentralizes power that is gives people in the lower ranks of organizations more control over their own activities senate writes certainly this claim is false in terms of the techniques employed for taking apart the old bureaucratic behemoths the new information systems provide a comprehensive picture of the organization to top managers in ways which give individuals anywhere in the network little room to hide, end of quotations. But it isn't only that information technology has granted managers more access to data. It is that the data itself has proliferated. Much of this information is provided by workers themselves. Uh, How do you say that name? Massimo de Angelis. (laughs) Massimo de Angelis and David Harvey um, describe some of the bureaucratic measures with which a lecturer must comply when putting together a model for an undergraduate degree in British universities. For each model, DeAngelis and Harvey Wright, the module leader, MLIE lecturer, I don't know, in parentheses, must complete various paperwork, in particular, a model s- specification at times modules s- start, parentheses, uh, which lists the module's aims and objectives, ILO's modules and methods of assessment, amongst other information and a module review document at the end of the module in which the ML reports their own assessment of the modules, uh, module strengths and weaknesses and their suggested change for the following year A summary of the students' feedback and average marks and their dispersion. Okay, I don't know what any uh, of that means.
1: This is my own take. I feel like Mark Fisher was just hoping his university would read this and be like, oh my fucking God, what are we doing? No, I feel like what he is complaining about is that, hey, you hired us to be professors. We've gone to school for this for an extremely long time. Why do I have to go through all of these steps every single year to present to you what I'm teaching? There are parts of me that think this is good because I've been to American universities. And while this is not, Common, I would say that I have encountered some teachers that I wish had had some more uh, module oversight, if you will. But I think for like serious teachers, for people who have put a lot of time and energy into that, to be told, hey, you're the professor, but we need you to go through these seven levels of your review for your module, including what kids that you're supposed to be teaching say about your class, uh, I could see that just being like, wait, hold on, what the fuck, dude? That's uh, a lot of oversight for something. It's just bureaucratic waste as well, I'm sure, to them,
0: where it's like, hold on, you hired four people to make sure that I'm teaching okay? That makes sense. All right, this is only the beginning, however. For the degree program as a whole, academics must prepare a program specification as well as producing annual program reports which record student performance according to the progression rates, withdrawal rates, location, and spread of marks. All students' marks have... To be graded against a matrix. This auto surveillance is uh, complemented by assessments carried out by external authorities. The making of student assessments is monitored by external examiners who are supposed to maintain consistency of standards across the university sector lecturers have to be observed by their peers while departments are subject to periodic three or four day inspections by quality assurance agencies for higher education, QAA. If they are research active, in quotes, um, lecturers must submit their best for publications every four or five years to be, gra- to be graded by by panel as part of a research assessment exercise, re- replaced in 08 by the equally controversial re- controversial research excellence framework. DeAngelis De and Harvey are clear that these are only very sketchy accounts of only some of the bureaucratic tasks that academics have to perform, all of which have funding implications for institutions. This battery of bureaucratic procedures is by no means confined to universities, nor to education. Other public services, such as the National Health Service and police force, find themselves enmeshed in similar bureaucratic um, metastases. 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 metastases.
1: I guess what gets to me is that, like, inherently, I don't really have a problem with bureaucratic oversight as long as everybody's goal is to do the best that they can at what they're doing, um, if that makes sense. Like, if, if there's a bureaucratic process to provide teachers with more resources, things of that nature, to oversee which way uh, the budget can be spent to maximize student learning, things of that nature, unfortunately, and I think what is implied here is a lot of the bureaucracy just ends up existing for bureaucracy's sake. Like, oh, we need these programs to exist so we can justify this budget. Kinda, I guess, goes back to how certain things in government can be funded. I'm not super mad at bureaucracy. I'm just mad that A, yeah, he just once again highlighted, it. we don't have to reread it, but he talks about how it's geared towards profit. It's like, okay, are we doing everything to maximize profits for this school, uh, as opposed to are we doing everything to maximize the learning experience of the school? Uh, Just to do a shout out to like Plato, Uh, that is one of the things, you know, a lot of shit that he talks about in his utopia is pretty silly. I think the thing I like about it the most is letting people uh, follow what they're best at. Like that seems to be a thing that gets overshadowed in bureaucracy is that people are uh, hindered with things they're not good at. Um, that slow them down at what they are good at i.e teachers might not be great at having all of their things reviewed seven times that doesn't mean they're a great teacher now their teaching is being lessened because they have to spend so much time doing something they don't care about
0: at all yeah Which, and you know. you know i remember and i'm sure it's gotten way worse but i remember us being in high school and having so many days be spent on preparing for standardized tests Yep. and learning how to take that specific test properly and efficiently rather than continuing to teach their um uh, what's the word i'm looking for their um syllabus like subject or, matter or, so yeah. 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 yeah yeah syllabus that's yeah. that's the word yeah yeah,
1: yeah. and and it, it actually like limited me going to college a bit because so much of my writing assignments were based on uh our state's standardized testing requirements. So like your assignments would all be like, uh, this is a three-page, you know, five-paragraph paper. We need a solid introduction, three fleshed-out body paragraphs and a conclusion. You know, I mean, everything was so taught so that you could instantly understand that format when you took those tests. And why? Because those tests were how your school got their funding.
0: Right. And they would get their funding cut if... Yes. If it wasn't how... um, the state thought it should be which
1: was part of what no child left behind unless that child is in a poor or urban environment was the full name of the program correct
0: um so that is going to wrap us up for today part one of chapter six the next episode we will be starting midway through page 42 on uh, capitalist realism thank you all for uh joining us and spending some time
1: have a great day